You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. All right, my friends, I'm going to read our teaching text, and we're going to dive in. Our teaching text today is John 21, verses 1 through 17. It says this, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciple followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, we are continuing in the series Resilient Hearts, How to Live and Love in a Port City. And what does it mean for us to have hearts that can endure, whether we are transplants and are trying to push back against the cultural call of consumption uh, uh, and comfort, or whether we are homesteaders and this has always been our home and we're pushing back against that desire to be caustic and kick out everyone who wasn't born in the five boroughs. How does it look like for us to become a community together that reflects the glory of God in the coming kingdom of a reconciled people? 
Well, to do that, we need these resilient hearts. And so we've been going through the different characteristics of a resilient heart. First week, we started with having settled hearts. If we're going to have resilient hearts, we have to have hearts that are settled on Jesus, that are founded in the love of Jesus towards us and the power of his gospel. Secondly, we talked about from that foundation, we have to have sourced hearts, hearts that continually go back to God for renewal and strengthening and commissioning back out into a world that is constantly trying to deform us and transform us out of what God wants us to be. And so today, as we've talked about before, we're talking about the third characteristic of a resilient heart, which is surrender. And so what does it mean for us to have surrendered hearts? Well, I am very excited because we're just honestly going to sit with this passage and tear it apart. And uh, this is one of my favorite things to do because the word of God um, does not return void. And so I think that the Lord has so much he will give us today if we'll allow him. And so with that, let me just pray for us and say, Lord, we come to the ministry of your word through the power of your gospel, which is effective uh, for training, reproach, uh, correction, and teaching. Lord, would you give us all that we can handle? And would you grow us more and more into the likeness of you, we pray. Amen. All right, so when we come into this passage, John 21, as this passage tells us, this is the third time since the resurrection that Jesus has visited his disciples. And so we have a people who have experienced the loss of a good friend kind of over and over. And though when they thought he had died and was gone forever, they were pleased to see him come again. But we have to realize there's a fundamental shift in the relationship. Namely, before Jesus' death, he served as the rabbi to the disciples, meaning that they stayed in close communion and companionship with him. They walked with him from place to place, and they were under his wing as he taught and guided them. When Jesus comes back from the grave, he appears to them once in the upper room, and again when Thomas is there, and now here on a beach. And they are no longer in that close community that they once were. He has not reestablished the rabbinical relationship. And so they are kind of in this place of confusion because if you know anything about the rabbinical system, how it works, these disciples were rejects. They had fallen out of the program to even get a rabbi, which is why it was so um, uh, meaningful that Jesus called them Usually you would go to a rabbi, and yet this rabbi came to each of them and said, come and follow me. And so they got to restore because they were just doing the family business. That's what's happened when you fell out of the rabbinical system. You returned to your family trade, and you just kind of made a living with the rest of your life. And so here they were grafted back into the system, and now they're back out. And they're kind of just confused and adrift. And for Peter, he says, I'm going to go fishing. There are three scenes, I think, that happen in the passage that we're going to uh, unpack today. And I want to take each scene one by one. And I think under each scene, there's a theme. There's this thematic element that I want us to be aware of because I think each theme uh, and each scene will give us a picture of what it means to have surrendered hearts. And so for this first scene, here's the theme. The theme is our lack and his abundance. Our lack and his abundance. I'm going to read this, verses 1 through 6 again, and I just want you to listen through that lens of lack and abundance. So, verse 1 says, After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan, Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. 
And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Lack and abundance. Let's start with the lack. When we come into this passage, we have these guys who again have experienced the loss of another one they held close moving on, and in a drift, Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. Now, Peter, by trade, was a fisherman, but the implication, it seems, around this passage is that he wasn't going to work. He was going to a hobby. He was going to just do this thing that he, he was going to just get away and kind of clear his thoughts. And the rest of the team is like, hey, we're coming with you. And so now, again, these are skilled fishermen. They've been on plenty of seas. We see this in Mark 4, where it talks about the storm that came up and how, you know, Mark's remarking on how, like, they're so scared, which is impactful because these guys know the water. They know their nets. They know their equipment, and they know how to fish. And so they come here in this passage to fish, and what they find is empty nets. There's a lack. And they have the gifts and the competencies, but their gift and their competencies alone produce nothing. Maybe this sounds familiar. John 15, John told, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, I am the vine and you are the branch. Verse five, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It doesn't matter your gifts and your skill set. You can get the net in the water, but you can do nothing. And so the disciples are out fishing and they have a lack. But this changes. Why? This changes because Jesus calls out. Friends, do you have any fish? No, got nothing. So Jesus gives them this tip. Cast it on the right side. I'm sure that that was not the first time they had put it on the right side. But they surrender. They do it. Okay. And this time what happens? Verse 5. Uh, verse, they, verse 6 says they were unable to haul in the net because the large number of fish. I don't know if you know how fish work, but they don't just kind of like show up. Like just, you know, you put it over there. It's not amazing. Like, and you put your net back, you're not typically going to get a full net. Like they're either there or they're not there. But when Jesus invites them into using their gifts and their competencies, all of a sudden there are more fish than there has ever been. And here's what I think we can get from that. The way of Jesus leads to abundance. Our gifts and our competencies, if we live out of our gifts and our competencies and what we can conjure up in ourselves, it will produce nothing. But when our gifts and our competencies meets God's provision, meets God's direction, meets the invitation of Jesus in our lives, what we will find is not just enough, but more than enough. We find abundance. that abundance is not absent of work. My dad used to tell me, because I used to pray like, God, just, just give me, you know, give me a good heart. And my dad was like, son, God doesn't give you a good heart. He gives you opportunities to have a good heart, to use a good heart, right? When the scriptures say, if you pray for patience, how do you get patience? Well, you go through trials and tribulations, and that develops some patience in you. So be careful. We bring our work, we bring our giftings, we give the individual things that God has crafted our hands to do. 
But if we think that these things alone will provide for us, they simply won't. They will fail us. But if we are using our giftings under the invitation of the Spirit, under the power of Jesus, we will find abundance. Surrendered hearts allow Jesus to bring abundant power and purpose to our time in this city. When we surrender, we've all come here, are born here, and we have gifts and things that we can give this city. And when we do it with surrendered hearts, what that allows is Jesus to come in with power and purpose. He tells us where to place our giftings, cast it on the right side. And that then creates abundance for this community, for us as people. And so the question would be, what would happen if even just a handful of us became open to God's work? We have at this point 11 men who fundamentally changed the world forever. What would happen if 11 of us surrendered our hearts and surrendered our gifts and competencies to the direction and invitation to Jesus? Might at least get some fish. So scene one, our lack and his abundance. Doesn't stop there. Let's go to scene two. The theme for scene two I want you to think about as I read this text again are signs and surety. Signs and surety. Think of that as we read through this. Then the disciple, verse seven, that Jesus loves said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciple followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as, uh, wait. I think I got mixed up. We went backwards. Here we go. Oh, okay, here we go. So they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came. This is the third time that Jesus appeared to disciples after he was raised from the dead. Don't hit control V twice or you'll get really confused. Um, all right, so signs and surety, seven through 14. What happens here? First seven through eight, I want us to see very beginning what happens. They can't catch fish. This man from the shore says, hey, friends, you got any fish? No. Okay, cast it on the right side. Well, clearly, as soon as they put the net the nets in the water, there's enough fish that they literally can't put it out. And so John immediately recognizes what is happening from this sign. He sees the sign, and he's like, there's only one person I know that can multiply fish. I've seen this before. It's Jesus. And Peter, the most excitable. Peter is my man. Everybody needs a Peter. He has your back. He's like gone in the water to the shore to go see his Lord. There's something that I think that tells us. 
One is namely this, the work of Jesus is self-evident and produces invitation. A lot of times we throw around these words about like uh, following Jesus, this, Jesus did this, this happened, you know, God did this in my life. And people are like, kind of like, what does that mean? Because you're kind of like, oh my gosh, like, uh, you know, I happened to, I was about to say call into the radio station. Get to, no one does that. Uh, but you like, I caught my train right when like I was, it was about to, you know, take off and I was able to run down there or the bus was about to leave and he just happened to see me and God did that. And sometimes it's like, what does that even mean? Well, I think what we're talking about for the life of a believer, as we start to draw in a relationship with Jesus, we start to know the ways in which he works and sees. We start to kind of like John, know how he moves. And it becomes easy to say, oh, that's my God. I know this, I've seen this before, I've been through this place. That's why it's so important for us to keep Ebenezer's and to remind ourselves of what God has done in our lives because those then become a sign of his moving in the future. They become assurance in the future of what God has done. So this work of Jesus is self-evident. When Jesus is in it, you know it. And knowing it, it kind of produces this invitation. Come and join him. So Jesus, so Peter jumps out of the boat. And as he's coming up, Jesus asks him, invites them to come and have breakfast. Bring some of the fish you just caught, he says. Something very interesting. Jesus shows up on this beach to spend time with his disciples. He wants to make them breakfast, right? And so he provides the fish. They bring in this net. But when they come to shore, Jesus already has fish cooking. He's already started breakfast. And I think this is so important because there's this truth here that we see that Jesus is often working, always working, before we are aware. We are walking into what Jesus is doing. These signs produce surety. Isaiah 65, 24 says, before they, before they call, I will answer. While they're still talking, I will listening. I'm listening. Before you even know that you need to pray because your job might be in trouble, God has already been at work to guide you through what is to come. We walk into the invitation of Jesus. He's already making breakfast. But he doesn't just make breakfast. He doesn't just do everything he invites us to come along. And he provides the energy. And so he says, throw your nets on the right side of the boat. And then he, and then the disciples get to bring in the fish. And he says, bring in some of the fish that you just caught so that we can have breakfast. Do you see how it works? We will get spun out if we believe that we've got to figure out the next step of life. And we will become impatient if we believe that our prayers are what activate God's moving in our life. Because it'll be like, why? I just started praying. Why aren't you moving? But if we understand fundamentally that Jesus has already been moving before we even know what to pray for, then we understand that prayer primarily serves to reorient our hearts and to remind us that it's on him and not on us. 
Prayer becomes an ability to give vent to our souls. Isaiah 65, 24, again, before they call, I will answer. But the second part is, when while they're still talking, I will listen. Oftentimes, you know, I got a two-year-old and, you know, I, I'm going to like, I'm feeding them breakfast. And I'm making breakfast and I got the eggs going. And so he's just learned the word bacon. God bless him. Uh, <laughs> he's like, bacon, I want bacon. And I'm like, no, nah, bro, I already got eggs, you know. I'm like, I already got this breakfast thing covered. I don't really need your input. This is, what you're, this is what you're eating. And that's because I'm sinful. I'm not a father like God. I'm working on it. God has said, he's like, I'm already working, and yet I want to stop and listen. Bring me your prayers. Cast me your anxieties. He doesn't need our prayers to find out what we need. He desires our prayers because he wants to share his heart. Secondly, so we get these signs of Jesus and the signs produce invitations and then these signs also show us that he is faithful because we can remember what he's done. And those, the surety, this is where the surety comes in because we have insurance for, in Jesus because he provides all that we need for all that he gives us. See, Jesus doesn't just, um, he doesn't just provide more than enough he doesn't just meet us in our lack, but he also provides for the capacity to handle his blessing. Look at the verse again. So when we go in, it says, um, uh, verse 11, so Simon Peter climbs back into the boat, drags the net ashore, it's full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus made that net to survive the abundance that he'd given the net holds. But Jesus is sure. And he's not going to give you something or bring you through something without a, with a net that can't hold. Which is not to be confused with a net that doesn't get stressed. We will absolutely face things that Jesus brings us to that threaten to break us. That threaten to undo us. But what we will find is the resiliency to persevere. He may not give us enough energy for the week's worth of trouble, but he'll give us enough energy for today. Sometimes he gives us just enough light to shuffle our feet, and sometimes we have enough light to run a little bit. But regardless, he's making plain the way. He establishes the work of our hands. Think of Philippians 1 and 6, which says, being confident of this, this is what Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So Jesus comes and he does the work that only he can do. That then produces signs of who he is. And then we see in his provision and in his sustenance for that provision that he is sure and we can be assured in him. Surrendered hearts become conduits of God's sure work, which become irresistible signs of his glory. When we live in the city with surrendered hearts, God can start to move. He can feed people through a pantry. 
becomes a sign of his glory, becomes something irresistible. Uh, I love the pantry, and if you haven't been, like, I just, you should sign up. You should come see. It's popping. There's a lot of life happening there. Uh, and it's so cool because it's not just Ochers. We literally have people, uh, the people that we buy some of the produce for to give away um, um, to the pantry. The person that, like, oversees our account is now, like, a regular member. Like, she just started coming to the pantry. And then she started bringing friends. It's like, it's it's because it's it's such a beautiful place of us meeting the invitation and the power of God as he establishes our work. What sign could we become if we became a truly reconciled people? Like a people where people walked in here and they're like, how are all these people in here? Because like with the subway, There's all different kind of people, but that just means they're going in the same general direction. But to be all kinds of people in here means there's something going on that's drawing us all together. I think that's the invitation. What would happen if we became that kind of people? And I just became that kind of people. What would happen if we started to tell the truth about what Jesus is doing? What I mean by that? You ever been with your, like, your Christian friends and you're like, man, let me tell you what God did. But then when you're a secular friend and you're telling the same story, you're like, I got so lucky. <laughs> with your Christian friends, they tell you some, like, something that's going on. You're like, I'll pray for you. With your non-Christian friends, you're like, oh, man, I'm thinking about you. What if we just started telling the truth? I just realized it's a, I have a dear friend who uh, isn't a believer and uh, he just got this new job and we were hanging out, and um, it was just so cool. It was like a really random moment. He was just like, hey, man, I, I know you've been praying for me to get a new job, and I really appreciate it because it happened. Like, I got this job I was, like, really wanting. Um, that was it. But I loved that moment because <laughs> he knows the positioning of my heart, and that becomes an invitation. Look what happens when the net goes in and John realizes, and he says it's the Lord. What happens? Peter starts running. In John 4, when the woman at the well, she goes back and she tells the people, I've met a man who told me everything I knew and what happened? The people start running. The city is waiting on some people to tell them the news. A surrendered people. What would happen if you surrendered your conversations to God and let him speak to your friends who may not know God or far from him? Last scene. Scene three, the theme, mess-ups turn come-ups. Verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Then the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So there's a little context. There's an elephant in the room at this breakfast. This is, this unaddressed thing is that the last time Uh, before these other two times where Jesus has come into and revealed himself 
and also left the upper room, Peter messed up. Really messed up. Because as Jesus is being taken away to slaughter, Peter, who had followed him into the Sanhedrin as he was being questioned uh, by the religious leaders, is confronted first by a maid, and second by a maid and a, and a bystander, and then third by the whole crowd. And they ask him this question, hey, aren't you with him? Three times they ask him, and three times Peter vociferously denies. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Matthew says at the end, he starts like cursing. He gets belligerent. No, I am definitely not with him. And then a rooster crows. And Peter is reminded of an earlier dinner where Jesus told him that he would betray him. And all of the four gospels remark that Peter just wept profusely. And he's never talked about it with Jesus. I don't know if any of you have like really screwed up in a friendship. I have had a conversation with a friend that's like ended in like, I just can't be your friend now. And that was started a three year separation. It is heartbreaking. Someone that you love so much. And then there's this rift. And then that first time you're kind of like really sitting down and you're just like, I don't even know how to bring this up. So that's the elephant in the room. And I think that's important to us because as we talked about having surrendered hearts or even resilient hearts, the truth is we won't always. We won't always surrender. Because of our brokenness, we will fail. We can't fool ourselves that this is an exercise in being perfect. Actually, we have to recognize that this is an exercise in recovery. Brokenness is where we start from most of the time. So what's going to happen when we inevitably mess up? What's going to happen when we have our unsurrendered hearts? Well, let's see what happens for Peter. There's a pretext I want you to get before we dive into this scripture, and that's the type of love here. In the English, when we read this, three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? But in the Greek, this is actually different words uh, that Jesus is asking. And so there is a, um, there's an interplay that we're going to unpack in a second, but what's happening. But there's two words, agapeo, which is the verb form of to love. This means like a, a special love that's dignified towards, um, it, it kind of means like a significance. This thing is worthy of honor. This thing is worthy of being set apart. This thing is worthy of like love and reverence. Like you would love, like I love my wife because she's my wife. I also, you know, you was like, I love this country because this is where I was born. It's that kind of love of, uh, that shows respect towards the item that it's been given. But then there's phileo which is a brotherly love, Philadelphia. This is that love that's like, you know, you're my mate. And I wish we had that word in, in, in America. You know, I, I would love to use mate. It's so versatile. Uh, and I just feel like an imposter. <laughs> just like, just reminds me of those college days, pretending to have a British accent. I'm, we're just going to stop. Um, so there's two different forms of love here. 
And when you're talking to someone, both, when I think about my wife, I can both love my wife because she is my wife, and then I can also love my wife as my friend. So both can be attributed to the same, but they're also different loves, right? And this is just important because in this passage, there's, a, there's some contextual debate among scholars about what is actually happening here in this interchange. Like, does it matter that the words uh, vacillate back and forth as we're going to unpack? And I would say... Um, that it does, because there's, um, there's something that Jesus is doing here. Give me two seconds, and we're going to unpack that. But first is the thing that I want you to see. Jesus addresses Peter. I should want to unpack that love thing. When Jesus addresses Peter, when he says, do you love me, the first two times, that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He uses his verb form of agape, agapeo. That's what he's saying. Peter, do you love me as your Lord? Do you love me for my position in your life? Peter responds, I phileo you. Peter is saying, I love you like my friend. I don't just see you as my Lord. I see you as my friend. Three times Peter uses the verb form of friend love, and two times Jesus uses this form of love towards of respect. And then the last time Jesus meets Peter and what he's saying, and he says, Peter, do you phileo me? Why is that important? There's something that's happening here. Peter is coming into this moment knowing that he has broken the friendship. So he's trying to restore that to Jesus. He's trying to say, I'm sorry, I love you like my brother. I'm sorry that I wasn't there for you when you needed me the most. And he experiences hurt because he's coming in with the confusion because the way that we operate, right, is if you offend me, I will oftentimes hold it against you. So if, you've, if I found out that you're my friend and you've been gossiping behind my back and then you see me again, oftentimes because of my brokenness, I'm approaching you in, you're the snake, okay? Uh, our, that friendship part of any relationship that we have is broken, even though we may be coworkers or teammates or we go to the same church. Okay, we go to the same church, but we're different, right? And so Peter is expecting Jesus, when Jesus asks him this form of, 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 do you love me as your Lord? Peter thinks that it's a slight. But what we see is that Jesus is actually not focusing on that broken friendship of Peter. He's not holding over Peter what he has done. Jesus is actually trying to establish Peter in this coming position as a leader in his church. That's what Jesus is doing, but they're, do, they're having this miscommunication. And the, and the fundamental part of this communication is the reality that Peter doesn't understand that Jesus doesn't hold our sins over us. Jesus isn't holding a grudge. Jesus isn't trying to make a subtle implication by referring to the Lord version of love. He's not trying to say, Peter, you don't, I know you don't love me as a friend because remember, when I needed you, you weren't there. That's not what he's trying to say. But Jesus is trying to restore Peter, and Peter's just missing the point. 
Jesus doesn't dwell on where we've been. He speaks into where we're going. Isaiah 43, 25 says that the Lord, uh, he says, I cast our sins as far um, as the east is as the west. Uh, but actually 43, 25 says he remembers our sins no more. He doesn't count us against them. But we know that God knows all things, right? So when, this, when the scriptures say that he remembers our sins no more, what it's trying to say is that he doesn't hold them over us. He knows them, sure. Isn't capable of God to forget, but he doesn't, that isn't the lens through which he addresses us. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that true love keeps no record of wrong, and God is love. And so as Jesus moved towards Peter, he's reminding him, hey, he's trying to restore him, but Peter sees this uh, differently. And we know that Jesus is trying to restore Peter as uh, he's trying to speak into where Peter is going because he asked him this. The first question he's asked him is, Peter, do you love me more than these? That word there, there's three different things that Jesus can be referring to. I'm not gonna bore you with the, the grammatical nature of the Greek, but essentially I would say our best understanding of this passage is that when Jesus says, do you love me more than these, even though they're surrounded by the other disciples, Jesus is actually referring to the net and the fishing equipment. He's referring to these things that Peter has used before as his identity and returned to when, his, when he was adrift. And Jesus is saying, Peter, like, do you trust me? Do you love me? Do you surrender me as your Lord? Do you seek me as your identity? Are you still a fisherman? Are you going to be my man? That's what Jesus is doing here. And we see this that at the very end, Jesus comes towards Peter. And so he says, okay, okay, I get it, Peter. I get it. Do you love me as your friend? Peter says, yes. And they're restored. Jesus doesn't dwell on where we've been. He speaks into where we're going. But he does that by giving us a new framework for living. Again, think back, go read John 4 and see how Jesus notices the sin in this woman's life. Of course you've had more than five husbands, but then he gives us an invitation into something else. He gives her a new framework for how to relate to him. He does the same here with Peter. So we have two different verbs on this kind of stuff, but I want you to, to, to look at the, the answer here too. So when he says uh, the first time, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Peter says, yes. He says, then feed my lambs. Now you'll see uh, here, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. There are these two different verbs that are happening here. This first one, when Jesus says, feed my lambs, what he is telling Peter, he's giving Peter a new framework. Because remember, the rabbinical system that they've known is gone. And so now Jesus is helping Peter understand, this is how you're going to move forward from here. You are now, because you love me, are going to feed my lambs. And by this, that word feed, really in the Greek, it's the sense is to raise up, to tend through feeding, but it's to grow up his lambs, his little ones. A lamb is a baby sheep. And so Jesus is giving Peter this framework. If you love me, then I am now commissioning you to raise up my little ones, it's particularly the immature and the vulnerable ones. So he says, hey, 
feed my lambs. Next, he asks Peter again, do you love me? Okay, then he says to him, yes. And then Jesus tells him, tend my sheep. Here, Jesus gives Peter another framework for his new life. First, you're gonna raise up the immature and the vulnerable amongst us in the way of Jesus. Second, you're going to oversee all my children. That, that, that Greek verb there is uh, used to basically uh, denote overseeing or caring for, watch over. So where we get like pastor and shepherd. Here, Jesus is telling Peter, hey, look over my children. Lastly, as Peter explains, hey, Jesus, I, I love you. When Jesus asks again, he tells Peter this. Again, feed my sheep. But this time he switches. This is the same verb he used when he told Peter to feed his lambs. But now he's talking about his sheep. And the sheep denote all of his people. All the people that Jesus cares about. And so Peter tells him, or Jesus is telling Peter, care for all my people. So the three frameworks for Peter's new life is one, raise up the immature and the vulnerable among us. Two, oversee, be a pastor over all my flock. And three, care for all people. Jesus gives Peter a new framework for living. We're almost there. Lastly, our, this other point I want you to see. In 17, it says, Peter says, uh, the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. That pain there, I think, is indicative of Peter realizing the mirror. Three times he denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asked me, Does you, do you love me? Remember, that third time he uses the verb that Peter is using. Do you phileo me? Do you love me like your friend? And it's like, oh. <sighs> Jesus is mirroring that denial. But I think there's something important there. The three questions that Peter was asked when he was denied Jesus were this. Are you with him? Do you identify with him? And Jesus, in Jesus' restoration of Peter, the three questions to undo those one he answered incorrectly this time is, do you love me? Are you with him and do you love me? Here I think we can see this, to identify with Jesus is to love him and to love others. That's how Jesus restores Peter. You identify with me. Are you with him? Yeah because you love me, and to love me, to identify with me, is to love me and then to feed my sheep. To identify with Jesus is to love him and to love others. The band's gonna start making their way back up here, but I want us to see this in this last scene. Surrendered hearts will fail, but can learn to love again. Surrendered hearts will fail, but can learn to love again. We have screwed up, and we will screw up. And I wonder today what shame we're carrying. What are the things we think that God is holding over us? 
And are we perceiving the invitations of Jesus through the lens of him being cold or vengeful? Jesus keeps no records of our wrongs, friends. So even as we mess up with our hearts that try to surrender to him, know that when we come back to him, we don't meet scorn, and we don't meet shame, we don't meet guilt, but we meet an invitation to love and to be loved, to be known and to know others. He doesn't focus on where we've been. He knows it. He addresses it. He calls a spade a spade. But more importantly, he gives us an invitation into something deeper and richer. Jesus makes crooked paths straight. And so as we move into worship, you can stand. Gemma's going to give us some instructions on ministry here in a little bit. I just wonder if you just take a second to reflect, maybe close your eyes, maybe just kind of sit and see what resonates with you. If Jesus invited you to breakfast, what questions would he ask you? What would he free you from? That's what he wants to do. What would he free you to? What gifts and competencies has he given you to share with the world? And how have you used your gifts and your skills? What would it look like to surrender them? And that's not necessarily in your vocation or what you do for money. What I'm talking about is just the positioning of our hearts with our skills. There's a lot of ways to use the things that God's given us that has nothing to do with how we pay our bills. It's really just about saying to God, here is my open and surrendered heart. Here are my hands. Here's everything that you've given to me. I give it back to you so you can use it to feed your sheep. So as we worship, would you listen to the Spirit? See what questions he's asking. Lord, I just pray that you would meet us here and now. Speak clearly and loudly, Lord. Cut through the noise of our hearts and our minds. We want to dwell with you.